This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Lit Lit Show on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. We're coming to you live from Northern Ireland. It's the first week back with pupils. The buildings are falling down, but teachers' enthusiasm is soaring and you're providing concrete evidence by the ton on Instagram and Twitter. We love it. The sunshine is having us all believe we've emigrated and now we live in Portugal, Spain or Greece. It's fabulous. Long may it last. And there's just 23 hours until France play New Zealand in the first match of the Rugby World Cup Finals. But the big game, I'm sure you all know, the big game this weekend is on Saturday, 2.30pm, when Ireland, the world's number one team, play Romania. Anyway, enough of all that, because on the show tonight, I have charismatic school leader, Paul Dwyer, and we're going to talk all things leadership, because I notice as well from Twitter, Instagram and all the rest of it, many of you are taking up new posts as school principals, vice principals, heads of department and so on. It's fabulous to see so many people getting on, progressing their careers and hopefully tonight through our discussion you'll get lots and lots of top tips on how to be the best leader you can be. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. So, Paul, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. I thought it was a good topic uh, this week because lots of people, um, as we can see, I mentioned in the intro from Twitter and so on, have got new jobs, they've got promotions, they're in leadership positions and and so on. And I thought it would be good uh, that, you know, they might be able to benefit from somebody like you who's got lots of experience, uh, a very dynamic, charismatic leader um, and so on. So... Paul, what what is leadership? In your view, what is it? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask that question. I've been racking my brains all day trying to think about <laughs> what I would uh, what I would say. <laughs> um, honestly, you know, I think there's a lot said and written, and that particularly for teachers, there's there's lots we can reflect on. For me, it boils down to, without trying to be uh, too glib about it, of of how we help others get the best out of themselves. You know, what can we do to support, work with others, point in the right direction, and ultimately help them be their best selves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so where does leadership come from then? Is it something people can learn or? I think so. I think that um, there's a lot said about what it means to be, you know, a particular type of leader or you know what it means to have experience and i think that's something that's that's worth pondering um you know as we get into our chat you know what what kind of experience makes a good leader but actually i think anyone can learn as long as they've got the willingness to um whether it's make mistakes whether it is to show humility or indeed you know to to willing to put yourself in the situation where things rest on your shoulders. I think that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Because if you are someone who is happy to point people in a direction, happy to tell people what to do, that's a version of leadership. But at the same time, being able to take responsibility if things go wrong, if those things don't work out as you might want it to, that's as much a part of it. It's, it's easy to tell what to do. It's harder to accept, you know, if things go wrong, how you might uh, work with others to, uh, to pick that up. Oh, very definitely. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and that then makes me think, you know, leadership is a lot about, um, you know, kind of courage, 
you know, and I, and I suppose I wonder quite quickly then, what are some of the, you know, the personal qualities that we need as a leader? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, courage is an interesting one for me because actually sometimes making the brave decision is, is be able to put all that to wait, you know, and actually see how a situation pans out or, you know, when an opportunity comes up, when to leap into action and actually uh, and take it. Personal qualities, I think you've got to have integrity. I think that, you know, I've, I've, I've worked with some wonderful leaders and actually what they've all had is that feeling of doing the right thing when that's not always the easy thing or indeed yeah. having those difficult conversations when actually it's easier to skirt around it. And, and Lord knows that actually the hardest thing I still find as a leader is having a difficult conversation with someone that you know you're working closely with or that you've set up with a responsibility and it hasn't you know been it hasn't been what you'd hoped for and that's as much about actually how you might have, have led that situation i think that's something i'm still learning and still getting right and wrong at times so i think that courage and integrity is is vital i think still i go back to that word humility because again when I've made the biggest mistakes, you know, when I started out in leadership, um, it was a fear of being found out. It was a fear of, you know, that imposter syndrome of not quite deserving a role. And so you end up jumping into situations or you end up kind of pretending to know an answer when you don't. And again, those are the things that are, again, only going to do a disservice to the community in the long run. So I think, again, it's knowing when you don't know as much as actually taking decisions that, uh, you know, you can't have all of the information all the time. Yeah, I think that's a very vital point. Yeah, I think, and, and I wonder, does that link to that sense of integrity, uh, that ability to kind of stand there or, or be in a meeting or whatever and admit that you don't know? I think so. And again, sometimes it's context specific, isn't it? You know, sometimes actually you probably should know and then it's sometimes then having the moment to say, look, I need to, to think on something. Again, it's that sense of if you are, let's take an example of, of working with a set of parents, you know, sometimes they're desperate to know what has happened in a given situation. And you've got to find the right balance of recognizing that their, their student, their children are going to be their main concern, are going to be the, the person that's forefront in their mind. And you're also balancing against, you know, understanding what the situation might have been does that fall in line with any kind of school expectations try not to undermine colleagues to make the situation go away so i think those can be the situations where there's not an easy right answer you know and acting with integrity isn't just about making the situation in front of you to go away it may well be saying look actually in this instance you know we we're, we're holding a line or in this instance actually you know it wasn't quite as as, as your child might have, have told us and, and we need to work through that you know for the best of everyone yeah yeah mm -hmm. i remember a time you know i think probably would have been the early days of my own leadership and um you know i think as a as a young leader i, I might have been quite pleased to have got the position and uh, had this sense that um you know i might want to um know a lot of things you know and i remember a mentor saying to me once but paul weakness is a position of strength. And I remember thinking about that an awful lot, and I didn't really understand it. Um, and I would also have been quite resistant to it. And I was in a meeting one time, I think it was a management meeting, and uh, a colleague that I admired, um, can't remember what it was we were talking about, but she just straight up and she just said, look, this is something I know nothing about. I can't comment on this. And at that moment, I kind of felt the strength around the table and it clicked with me. Sometimes that whole business of not knowing and admitting you don't know isn't a weakness at all. It's actually quite a significant strength. I'd agree. Absolutely. You know, and I think those are the things that are easier as time gets on, because, again, the longer you are in a position of leadership, the easier it feels to know, well, I can accept the strengths I have, or I can recognize that, you know, I'm in this role for a reason. And I think it links to, you know, advice that stuck with me when I, uh, when I started out was, was in a similar mold of when you've got those moments of self-doubts, when you've got those moments where actually you worry about how you might be received, 
you have to at least allow your ego enough to say, well, you know, I was given the job for a reason and I need to recognize that and, and build on that. And that doesn't mean, you know, showing, you know, omnipotence and saying I'm going to get everything right. But at the same time, it's saying, well, I can stand here and doubt myself and doubt everything around what I'm trying to do and worry about how people might receive this. Or I can recognize I'm, I'm here with purpose, here with reason, doing the best I can and, you know, willing to learn and, and build from that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. What would so, you say is, um, sorry, I was going to just jump in. What would you say in terms of, is there a requisite amount of experience you think a leader should have? You know, what does it mean, you know, in terms of building through one's career? Can one get into leadership too early? Ah, well, that is a good question. Um, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. I'd have to think about that quite a bit um, <laughs> because I, I would be of the view that all teachers are leaders. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not necessarily school leaders or departmental or pastoral leaders or anything like that, but they certainly have to lead their class. So I think, you know, they, they're getting the skills, they're getting the qualities, they're practicing them day in, day out in classroom management and leadership with pupils, uh, encouragement, persuasion, problem solving, facilitating, you know, generally being a very, very good role model to your your pupils. Um, But is is there a step up then to school management? Um, I do think there is. I think there's a step up to middle management. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's quite a significant step up to senior management. And I do think there's something about earning your stripes as you go along or getting experience, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah. Um, it's not to say it won't eventually click or come right for people, but I do know across my, well, what is it now, 38, 38 year career, I have seen a lot of people move into middle management, senior management, and really, really struggle. Um, I'm a big believer in in having mentors, no matter where you are in that structure or system. Um, And I think if you've got a good mentor that can help you to, uh, you know, shake off any imposter syndrome, shake off any arrogance and ego and become a much better leader. Hmm. I'm sorry I asked that now because you gave a much better answer than I would have done in the same situation. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. <laughs> um, I think we've got yeah. an interesting challenge in uh, in schools, I would say, at the moment because we recognize there is a crisis of leadership looming of you know people who are not necessarily wanting to go into senior leadership as, as maybe they once did or indeed yeah. you know, as, as people move into retirement and, and will people be able to, to fill in that. I think what's been interesting is that I find it difficult as a head because I want to be able to provide pathways and training based on what people are interested in. You know, if someone wants to be a head of year one day, you know, providing the right training opportunities for them to do so. Yeah. But without then, you know, you can have a development pipeline and pathway, but you you can't be seen to funnel people into roles when actually people who might not have taken that training but actually would be just as well suited you'd then feel aggrieved if they didn't get a chance at a role or that they felt you know they were being overlooked just because they hadn't put their hand up in the right way and i think that's something we we struggle to solve in schools i would say yeah that's a very interesting point yeah Mm -hmm. i suppose my my kind of thrust, if you like, um, across those 30 years has always been um, like pastoral and personal and very much taking an interest in people. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I was in a position to uh, appoint a year head and, um, you know, I, I, a few people had approached me and, you know, as they do, and that's fine, I think, you know, and asked me what was it about and did I think they would have the qualities, the skills, and the abilities to do the job. Mm-hmm. And I remember one girl uh, came to me asking the same questions, and I thought I, I, I had significant belief in her. But she didn't have belief in herself. So yeah. she didn't apply for the job. And then, you know, she didn't have that kind of pastoral balance to, to whatever, you know. And then it came to opportunities she had to apply for vice principalships and principalships 
And she always kind of felt that, you know, she'd made a mistake away back then and she should have taken that job to give her that breadth and that dynamism because, you know, whatever it was, 10, 12, 14 years later, she realized she did have some of those skills. So I would be a big believer in leadership being very much about people and being able to see in people some of the things they can't see in themselves, whether they're positive yeah. or negative. Yeah, I think sometimes you're right. It's um, I can't remember who wrote the book, but I read you know one called um, Multipliers, and actually, what it reflected on was that leadership is often about spotting the talent in others or spotting the ability in others that you know you can nurture and develop and and you know bring into teams or indeed help nurture new teams. And I think there's there's definitely something in that, isn't there? I do think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other angle that um, you know, is linked to that is that in schools, I don't know what your reflections are in terms of, you know, over the arc of your career, but it seems to me over the last 10, 15 years or so, schools, because we're becoming more complex beasts and organizations, there's more things to be, you know, accounting for and looking out for. We're better at creating more management positions and perhaps less so at more leadership positions. You know, there's almost a bureaucratization of middle leadership or upper middle leadership, you know, the rise of assistant head roles that actually are are integral to schools, but actually are dealing with a very specific area that doesn't necessarily allow people to get the experience that would then allow them into, you know, deputy or, or headship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we would just have the same issues in, in Northern Ireland. I think our systems, well, it's smaller and, and, and it's kind of slightly differently run. Um, we definitely, for a period of time, we had what we used to refer to as the CEO principle. You know, the principal who was the, the, the chief executive rather than the educationalist. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, maybe caught on to that fairly quickly and, and, and moved back into, uh, you know, having principals who were, you know, a much stronger, deeper vision of education than what they wanted. And I wonder if, and I worry that, you know, in a school setting and, and from an England's perspective, English perspective, should say that, um, again, with the growth of the trust model, academization, and what that's meant over the last, you know, two decades or so, are we creating situations where it will be harder for educationists to lead that, you know, as, as schools become more business-oriented and, and more complex, rightly so you, you've got a kind of managerial level there but um, my wife works in in medicine and again you you see the same shift in the nhs you know that actually senior doctors taking on responsibility in those ways you know just becomes harder it's not, it's not the background and experience and, and you're adding complexity yet again and one of the things i wanted to kind of look at or think about is you know as teachers we don't get taught about leadership at least not until you're kind of in a leadership position and you maybe have, you know, an education authority that provides some in-service or you go on to do a master's or something else and and you choose a leadership module. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nowhere where we are really taught about leadership. No, I agree. And I think that's where, again, it's not just about what we're or where the opportunities are to talk or teach, but it's also are there enough education-specific leader models, you know? Because I would say that, you know, people like Michael Fullen or John Toms, you know, there are clearly writers. I, I put a lot of stock in the work of Stephen Tierney, but they're fewer and far between. So actually our models of leadership still tend to come from the business world or from, you know, writers and influencers in that respect. And so where we actually glean that knowledge above actually wanting to learn it is is an interesting one. And I, I think we sometimes rely too much on the idea of taking taking the modeling of heads. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but you know, I've been on a number of insets, which is, you know, when I was, I was looking for headships and things, you know, aspiring headships or new to SLT roles. And again, it was hearing different heads reflections, which is invaluable. But again, their setting, their context is different. Their style, their approach is different. So you, you get a smorgasbord of different approaches and you piece together what do you think resonates with you or what do I like? But do you get a sense of what the actual kind of theories in practice look like or, or how educational leadership has changed over time? And I do think there's a gap there. Yeah, I think that very definitely is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I say quite often in uh, 
a couple of master's programs I teach. I'll probably get in trouble for this now. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you can guess mine would be all pastoral and personal development and the teachers who attend my courses, you know, I would kind of expect and like to provide, you know, quite a significant uh, personal input and personal growth and development for them. But one of the things I very often say is that uh, in opting kind of for my pathways, the pastoral ones, rather than the ones that are called educational management or this, that and the other, the people who opt for those pastoral pathways tend to go on to become the leaders. Because I, I do keep coming back to this that, you know, in education, I think it's fairly true of business as well. Leadership is about people. Uh, managers deal with things, but, but leadership is about inspiring your, your, and supporting, you know, the people that you have. I'd support that fully. You know, my, my hunch that I've, I've philosophized on with, um, with my teams is that, uh, if you're looking for future senior leaders, look for your best form tutors, because actually every great senior leadership team I've worked as part of, when we've reflected back on our previous experience, the one thing we always you know, took great pride and joy in was the relationships we built with our forms. And it's the same, you know, leadership is about relationships. It's about people. It's about nurturing. Actually, I think there is a, a clear overlap in the Venn diagram of those who care in that respect when it comes to, you know, form tutoring as, as a good example of that and then you know how that might serve them as they go into to leadership as well that's great i'm going to use that i'm going to ask people from now on what kind of form teacher are you <laughs> and see and see what they come up with yeah um and i suppose we have a document in in northern ireland um produced by the department well the education authority it's called learning leaders mm -hmm. um and and i suppose it tried to promote that you know, again, I've mentioned it, you know, no matter what level you're at, uh, observe your leadership skills, practice them. Uh, and they're all, I think, about educational improvement. You know, the better you are uh, as a leader in the classroom, the better your, your students will learn and, and so on. And, you know, I... I've used Rob Coe's words, you know, far too liberally when I've, uh, you know, given insight in, in the same vein, you know, for me in a school, you know, the purpose of leadership is to, to help every teacher be better every year. You know, it's making sure that we provide the right atmosphere, the right opportunities and, and often the right incentives and support to, to make sure that is as part and parcel. I do wonder sometimes as a leader, you know, in a school setting and, and going back to what we were just talking about, do we have not just a surface of, of how leaders are informed as leaders, but also I think sometimes picking your way through the various, you know, trends and arguments around, you know, what's best in education is, is interesting because again, the landscape shifts every few years as of what the zeitgeist is or what we think is the new now. And, and allowing time for your own context to be understood and allowing that to come through. And again, I'm a, I'm a big believer in evidence-informed education. I think it's just to try and make sure we hold ourselves accountable about, you know, the strength of evidence we use sometimes. Yeah, very true. Yeah. So just to go back a bit, you know, I think in England, you know, you have a slightly different model. You know, you've got your academies and your uh, different kinds of schools and so on. To be honest, I don't really have my head around all of that. <laughs> we don't really have that in Northern Ireland, but um, you would then have people who are leading schools or groups of schools who would be from industry, isn't that right? Yes, I mean, you you, you tend to get, I suppose, with the, the multi-academy trusts and particularly some of the bigger organisations, you'll tend to have some of more business-oriented at the helm of that because it is more typically a ceo role with then executive heads underneath it so there's still that kind of model of education-led leadership at the school level or across a group of schools but in, increasingly you'll see the bigger trust growing with um you know perhaps someone more industry oriented at the top it's not necessarily a commonality you know i still think you'll, you'll get a lot of people coming up through education but at the same time, the complexity of it makes that harder. And, and you know, you're having to draw upon a wider sense of skills to, to get to that sense. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I wonder then, you know, w w what do those people who are not coming up through education, you know, they're maybe not even teachers, but they've been successful elsewhere. 
what do they need to know? What do they need to learn in order to be able to, to kind of lead a school successfully? I think that's a really good question. And it's actually, you know, with my business manager, something we go back and forth on because, you know, he comes from industry and, and you know, his background is around, um, he used to work with a number of kind of logistics and, and trucking organizations. And so for him, you know, he will lovingly refer to PPA time as, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, time was sitting around or, you know, useless time that uh, the teachers get. And I think it's, it's said with a sense of joviality. Yeah. I think it's just for those who come from outside education. Well, no, let me start again. I think teachers and educational leaders sometimes should be a little less fearful of asking, you know, what can we learn from industry? How can schools actually learn from, from outside our walls? Mm. But by the same token, I think those who come from outside and lead a school or involved in the business management of schools also need to take time to appreciate, you know, what makes a school special? You know, we are set up differently. We will do do things, you know, that are, you know, education oriented, which might not be necessarily, you know, as high on a cost benefit as it could be. And even that's, you know, a luxury that we've had because of, you know, funding levels through the past. And again, it's getting tighter, you know, as any, every penny starts to count cost benefit, it's obviously far more important. So, I think they're coming closer together, but I think it's, you know, trying not to lose sight of why you're there, which is the kids in front of you, really. Yeah, exactly. That's that's why we're <laughs> all there, canteen ladies, right through to everybody. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to be a careers teacher as well as, as many other things as well. And, you know, over the years, I would have spent quite a bit of time in industry and I would have gone and you know, done work placements and things just as part of my own uh, personal and professional development. Mm -hmm. I remember way back at the beginning, uh, one of the things that was, you know, really quite shocking and awakening was the speed with which the world of work operated. Decisions made in a factory on a Monday morning were happening, you know, minutes later. Um, and in those old days in schools, you know, you could make a decision on the 1st of September that still wasn't happening on the 30th of June. Um, and that's just, just the way it was. But I kind of think those two worlds have kind of come closer together, mainly because schools have sped up enormously. Like schools are really rapid places now. Um, and things really do happen very, very quickly. Um, and I think, and you know, yeah. Yeah, I don't that's know. That's interesting, one, isn't it? Go on, sorry. Yeah, I don't know if we've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater a bit there. Now, obviously, there's a, there's a middle ground, there's a compromise, but we're now so rapid, so fast. I just wonder, are we losing things? And I think you know you've you've seen good evidence of that in terms of as schools plunge into um, you know, how they use technology, or indeed about you know how they roll out a, a new teaching and learning initiative. I dare say there's a degree of, of keeping up the Joneses, you know, not wanting to fall behind local schools or, or making sure that you're, you're seen to be ahead of the curve there. And actually, does that always work out as you might want it to? I do think you're right that schools do need to speed up sometimes or show an agility that the the kind of industrial the industrial world will, will have. But um, I think this... I think there's areas where we've learned a lot the wrong lessons. So there's areas where we're too quick and, you know, imposing change or jumping into change that actually isn't thought through about the impact of unintended consequences. And I dare say, you know, you could ask any of the uh, the colleagues who've had the uh, <laughs> the unfortunate opportunity to have been led by me who, who'd say I'm probably a, a big part of that world. But at the same time, I think there's areas where we could be learning more lessons and actually thinking, you know, a bit better in terms of how we how we learn the lessons post-pandemic about flexible working, how we look at actually what that might look like in a school, because, you know, for many of our teachers, they're seeing friends and family and, and you know, colleagues in other areas having, you know, a slightly better approach to what that work-life balance looks like or what that flexibility looks like. And, and schools are perhaps still a little bit conservative because we're worried about what it, it might lead to if we start to pull that thread. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you make a lot of very valid points in there. Yes, especially the one about, you know, feeling that we have to be on the cutting edge and the forefront of, of everything and maybe not let the school down the road steal a march on us. Yeah. 
And I think um, it's interesting because it's how do you embed that, you know, and again, to take the technology approach, how many schools went from, you know, OHPs to projectors to interactive whiteboards and now have interactive television screens or touchscreen TVs. I think that trend is not a bad one. And I'm, I'm a reasonable technophile. I'm, I'm very happy for using technology. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is that, you know, if you chart that journey, <laughs> what percentage of teachers are still using them to, to write on the board as they would have done with a blackboard or to display a PowerPoint, you know, and again, it's a case of if you're using them for those purposes, why spend the money? If you think you can embed it well and get the most advantage of it, then then make sure the training's there. And at the moment, we roll out the technology and use it for the same thing the old thing was used for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not using them to the full potential. So we're, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not maybe moving at the same speed or our training and support isn't moving at the same speed as the technology, I suppose. Yeah, and it's, it's something a governor once mentioned to me in, in a previous school was, you know, our strategic plans seem to have lots of different facets to them. And should we not just focus on two or three things and really do them well? Because again, that was his background in terms of in his workplace. It was right, okay, here are the three initiatives we're really going to nail this year and then look at it go from there. And our response at the time was that that's just not how schools operate. You know, you are moving many things as far as you can in the school year and it becomes very busy. But it yeah. is something I keep going back to and saying, well, actually, are we moving a thousand things an inch rather than actually one or two things a thousand inches? And actually, there's there's still a balance to be had there. And I think sometimes we, we do try and have it all in a school year and then, you know, say we'll learn the lessons and do it all over again next time around. Yes, I think that's a very valid point. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I, I used to talk quite a bit about less is more, uh, you know, and if, you know, if I were teaching a novel or something, you know, and, you know, at if a child knew five really good concrete things about a character in a novel, I used to think, you know, that was a very, very successful kind of period of teaching. Mm-hmm. We might have covered a lot, but if that child knew five good things, that was it. Rather than maybe trying to learn the hundred things that we kind of touched on or glossed over and they don't remember any. Precisely. You know, so I think I've, I've tried to take the same approach in more recent years of saying, you know, to, to senior colleagues, give me three priorities you want to work on this year. The top priority is the one that will be done above all else, accepting that if number two and three don't get done, it'd be a shame, but you've prioritized the right way. And again, it's hard because we all want to, you know, achieve great things in a year. There's, there's so many projects we want to kind of oversee and, and get done. And again, it's is trying to be realistic and aspirational and finding the right balance between those is something that uh, when I nail, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, please do. Let us all know the secret. Yeah. Um, Paul, can I come back to something you've touched on a couple of times, uh, maybe indirectly and, and, and more directly there a few minutes ago. Um, you talked about really, it, it, it's really about criticism of leaders and leadership. Um, One of the things I found is, particularly from people who are not leaders or don't see themselves as leaders, you're wide open for people to take pot shots at you. It's rather like, you know, um, well, I suppose at the minute it could be Manchester United every Saturday, you know, every armchair (laughs) pundit. Uh, it takes a long run up and has a really good go at them, you know. But the armchair critic isn't out on the field doing it, doesn't really fully understand everything that goes into that decision. Um, Would you find that there is that kind of, you know, almost automatic criticism out there? And and, and I don't mean that it's, you know, uh, I, I don't mean to bad my staff in any way but it's just a natural response um i think it is a natural response you know and, and when i i mean we were digesting a few weeks ago the results of um a staff um, well-being survey we did at the end of last year and uh you know we were really pleased with it with a lot of the positive comments and of, of course you dwell on those more negative facets mm. i think what helps to keep perspective for me is recognizing that, you know, frankly, I was in that situation. You know, I, I look back and and in slight horror, really, and think about, you know, me as an NQT and, and thinking you know it all and, and, you know, feeling that you can talk to colleagues around what you do differently or what you do better. And, and again, it's that where, you know, 
it's only natural to wonder about why are SLT overseeing this, you know, massive issue? Why are they not accounting for X, Y, and Z? And again, I, I still wonder the same myself in terms of, um, you know, do we sometimes miss the wood for the trees? So I don't mind if that's the natural fallback for colleagues because, you know, I've been there myself. I think as long as we can recognize that there is an open dialogue. So if it's a meaningful criticism, they've got ways in which they can put that forth and then have feedback about why it may well be more complicated than expected or why we've, we have considered that position, but we, we haven't gone down that line. I think it's not trying to make sure you justify every decision. Sometimes a tough decision is a tough decision and people just have to get on with it. But mm. I think on the whole, if you can just say, look, we're pointing in this direction, we're going to act with as much integrity as we can and, and keep dialogue open, then... I don't mind a little bit of gossip in the staff room about, uh, you know, why it's all my fault because, you know, <laughs> for better, for better or worse, it probably is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you're right. Yes. I think you're going to get that. I think that's what staff rooms and certain corners in certain staff rooms, uh, that's what they're about. Yeah. But I suppose it does. It brings us back to that. Uh, again, you know, we've kind of mentioned it already, you know, I do think you need broad shoulders, uh, to, to be a leader and you have to, you know, have a strong vision and make sure that it doesn't really get rocked by people who criticize you. I have no problem with people criticizing me. And sometimes I needed to go away and think and, you know, meet them a week later and explain and, you know, really, you know, use persuasive skills to help them understand why we're doing things. And I think, you know, the hardest thing for a leader, and I would say where you might see the real difference between a leader and a manager actually comes into making time to think big, making time to think strategically, and not feeling the guilt of perhaps taking an hour or two to have those moments, you know, too many calls that kind of sitting at the top of the mountain, because if you don't do that, you are just occupying yourself. You are making decisions to feel like you're doing something. And that's 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 where you get into the management. And that's necessary at times. But you need to take stock. You need to take moments to connect those bigger dots. Because actually then, you know, you can see the horizon a bit more clearly rather than just dealing with what's in front of you and, and again, becoming insular. You see, I think that's a very good point. And it, it takes me back to the question you asked me um you know and it's really about that you know is there an age or anything when you can be a leader or an amount of experience i suppose one of the things that i noticed as well was there is a big jump between middle management and you know senior management particularly especially maybe to vice principal and one of the things i noticed was that i, I always thought the middle manager has to go. You have to shed the middle manager. You're not a departmental head anymore. You're not a year head. You have to have this bigger overview. You have to be able to consider different departments, different aspects of school life, you know, and, and, and the whole kind of different breadth and depth of people. Um, and I suppose, you know, as the number of people gets smaller, as you go towards, you know, the pinnacle and the principle, the amount of thinking, breadth and all encompassing responsibility they have gets wider and wider. And actually, I think, I think there's something in that. And, you know, I suppose my, my own career trajectory was, was, probably you know slightly unusual in, in many instances i i was never actual headed apart i was never a middle leader you know i i had um a chance in in the second school i worked in i i a role came up to be seconded onto slt and and i managed to kind of uh, con my way into it and, and from there I, <laughs> and from there i went into a head of six form role so actually I was, I was in senior leadership and i wonder looking back sometimes if I'd have gone into, say, a head of history and politics role or a head of history role, I'd have really loved it. You know, I, I love my subject. Yeah. I think it would have probably taken, you know, three, four, five, six years, really wanting to kind of flesh out every aspect of that, you know, focusing on what it means to be a great head of history mm -hmm. and then maybe would have found it harder to look up and, and see what the next step may have been, you know, and almost kind of skipping that step, I guess, for, for one of a, a less clumsy phrase, you know, 
that allowed me to suddenly see a whole school perspective far earlier and appreciate actually what that looks like. So I was fortunate without a doubt to, to have that role as early as I did. And I just sometimes wonder on those slide at all moments if I'd have gone down ahead of department roof instead. So, so I agree, you know, I think that do we do enough of our middle leaders to help them to buy into or see what it's like, you know, behind the senior leader curtain. And I think, you know, there are schools that do it very well, whether that's, again, secondments to SLT or training specifically for middle leaders and, and some for whom we sometimes, I would hate to say we take advantage, but I think we're happy with them thriving as, as middle leaders and not necessarily helping them to appreciate and see the next step. And again, it, it goes back to, to what I was saying about leadership pathways and, and how we serve our staff in that. Yeah, and, and I think that's a very good practical thing. I know we did it a lot, um, and then we would kind of forget to do it, but uh, we didn't call it that. You called it a seconding middle managers mm -hmm. onto senior management. Um, but I yeah. suppose we just kind of co-opted them for, you know, a year or year and a half or whatever. It, we found it very valuable. Um, it's a very important thing. When I was young, I was always told, um, my parents were both teachers, you see, and uh, I was always told, you know, you have to mind your manners when you go to the school, you know, you're just into that school, you don't know anything. In all these meetings, whatever you do, you do not speak for the first two years. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite stern advice, but um, probably a little bit tongue in cheek. But I still think there's something to that. I think, you know, there needs to be a lot of looking, listening, observing, watching. These managers have been doing it for years. So one of the things that happened was when we would co-opt middle managers onto the senior management, one of the things was, you know, trying to get them to contribute and ask questions and, you know, feel that they were a fully fledged member. And I think that's it's the thing that's really i would say exercise me the most but um i would say there's a really interesting um balance as a as a head now when you get a new person joining the team how much do you give them an insight of you know your thoughts on situations or you know what the lay of the land is versus let them come in and get their own perspective on things how do you advise them in terms of listen get a feel for the school versus actually you know wanting to have a fresh perspective on things and i think again i've 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 got that more right than others at times and i've got that more wrong than others in terms of you know encouraging you know a, a fresh perspective or, or saying to someone actually you know your views are always welcome take a moment to, to see the surroundings and see the context and then you know think about what that might mean as well and it's it's hard not to patronize or it's hard not to kind of put people in a box or indeed not to set them up for, uh, you know, a fall because they're, they're jumping into something that is is less understood at that moment. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And But again, I think that's a, it's a super point, you know, that as someone who's more senior on that team, uh, you know, you extend a very caring responsibility and caring welcome to the other person. You, you accept them for who and what they are and that they're appointed on merit and that they have mm. a valuable contribution to make. Yeah, I'm not sure it always happens, um, but I know it was something that we consciously thought about as a management over the decades when new people were, were brought on. And I think you have to, you know, I think, again, one of the dynamics in a team situation is taking moments to reflect on as a team changes in dynamic as you grow together or as new people join. Do you take moments to to stop and reflect on your working practices you know do you take stock and say okay here's what's been working well here's what we expect from one another and, and here's how we'd like to build forward and, and again I've, I've not been as good at that as i'd like to have been in the past it's something i'm, I'm continuing to work on is not navel gazing but i think every few weeks just say okay let's take stock are we where we wanted to be are we are we having a moment to reflect on things or are we just kind of plowing on and, and fighting the many fires that seem to be around us yeah no, I think that's very valuable. But even even just listening to you say that, you know, um, and just feeling the speed of schools and the necessity <laughs> to just get done what's in front of you in that Absolutely. moment. Yeah. Absolutely. 100 miles an hour. 100 miles an hour. So you're listening to the Lit Lit Show on Thursday, the 7th of September. 
And with me tonight is Paul Dwyer, and we're talking all things leadership. And we'll be right back after these messages. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A wide range of media outlets have covered the ongoing issue of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, or rack, and its use in buildings, including schools, leading to concerns around safety. BBC reports that buildings at 52 schools in England were at risk of sudden collapse due to dangerous concrete. While safety measures have since been put in place at these schools because the situation was deemed critical, more than 100 others have also now been told to close areas with the concrete. These buildings were previously thought to be at less risk. The new guidance follows the collapse of a beam that was thought to be safe. Head teachers are now making alternative plans just days before the start of the new academic year. Some pupils have been told they will be learning remotely, whilst others are being housed in temporary classrooms or even at other schools. The total number of confirmed schools affected in England is 156. The news has since triggered concerns in all three of the home nations. The Scottish Government said it was trying to establish how many schools contain rack whilst in Wales investigations continue, although there have been no reports at present. The Northern Ireland DV said schools were being checked as a matter of urgency. Ministers in England have been facing media and having struggled to keep up with a range of questions being asked, including how fixing the issues caused by RAC will be paid for. Opposition MPs have pointed out that schools themselves already have issues with funding and that local authorities have seen cuts in recent years, so finances may not be there at a local level. The DfE has also faced criticism for not publishing a list of schools affected, although it defended its actions, saying parents should hear direct from the school itself, at least at first. A school in Southend, which caters for pupils with physical and learning difficulties, has contacted the BBC to outline the significant challenges it is facing, as the closure of its main building means staff and pupils cannot access essential special equipment. Whatever the outcome, it is certain that, for some pupils, this is the start of yet another unusual school year. Away from issues with buildings, Schools Week reports on plans to ensure all schools in England hold electronic registers which the Education Secretary will have direct access to. However, proposals to introduce thresholds at which penalty notices must be considered for unauthorised absences are paused. They were part of the currently shelved New Schools Bill. New rules are not expected to come into force until 2024 but it has been made clear that ministers see attendance as an area which must improve. More than half of parents who responded to the consultation on the plans for e-registers disagreed due to the possible punitive use of the data collected. Officials said it would be used to enable better early intervention. 92% of local authority workers and 85% of school staff who responded support the plan. The DfE will move forward with changes to simplify recording of attendance or absence. In total, 22.3% of pupils miss more than one in 10 sessions in the 2022-2023 academic year. This is compared to 22.5% in the year 21-22, despite significant government intervention. Prior to the pandemic, these rates sat between 10 and 13%. The TES reports that a group of watchdogs, including Ofsted, are jointly to carry out targeted inspections in schools where there is a risk of pupils being exposed to serious violence or exploitation. The inspections will happen in six unnamed local authorities and examine how police, social services and health services tackle serious youth violence. The focus will be on multi-agency interventions and could include interventions in schools, parks, shopping centres or specific streets where young people may be at risk. The team will include representatives from Ofsted, the Care Quality Commission, HMI of Constabulary, HMI of Probation Services, and each team will be led by an Ofsted Health and Social Care Inspector. Where a school is involved, they will be asked to show they have effective systems to identify children at risk of or subject to serious youth violence 
and children who are missing from school. The inspections will end in May next year. Full details of the report can be found on TES online. Finally, The Guardian reports that Lego is to begin selling bricks coded with Braille to help blind and partially sighted children learn to read the touch-based alphabet. The Danish makers of the bricks have made specialist versions tested and developed by blind organisations across the globe. The bricks have been sent to a selection of schools free of charge since 2020, but now they will be available more widely. LEGO hopes the initiative will help parents, siblings and others share in learning Braille and to encourage play interactions between sighted children and visually impaired friends. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. So, welcome back everybody. Uh, you're listening to The Lit Lit Show on Thursday the 7th of September and my guest is the charismatic leader Paul Dwyer. Hello Paul, are you still there? <laughs> I am indeed. Yes, I'm uh, trying my best to live up to the uh, the uh, the name of charismatic. To be fair. <laughs> oh, I think it just oozes out. Just just let it ooze out. <laughs> <laughs> so we're really into the um, last segment of the show, and we've uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I think actually. So maybe one of the things I'm wondering is, you know, um, what's the future for school leadership? And I know we touched briefly on a couple of aspects, but. You know, schools are changing, life is changing, children, families, society, government. What's the future for educational leadership? I think there's a model that if we are willing to be bold and willing to reflect properly as a, as a sector is to say, look, how do we empower more people who are interested in leadership and maybe look at you know models that are not necessarily just vested in in one person leading a school in the same way that we we have or i think that you know models of whether that's co-head teachers whether that's you know um you could imagine a a well-suited board leading a school with you know not too many issues if there's the right trust and relationship between them I worry that, you know, if there's not bold thinking, what we'll see on the other side is that as um, as working habits change and as people who come into education now have different expectations around careers, and, and rightly so, you know, you've, you'll see a model of people wanting promotion more quickly, wanting to get into leadership and, and then not necessarily staying in it as long. You know, I think that the model of, you know, heads who serve 20 years and stay in a school and you know become a bedrock of community it's a model that will sadly not be around in the same vein i think and again how do we account for that when turnover of leadership will be much quicker without thinking of alternatives or, or ways in which we protect leaders and incentivize that side yeah that's an interesting point yeah mm -hmm. yeah do, do you think there's a lot of I don't like the term, but we'll use it. Do you think there's a lot of burnout among head teachers and maybe they should only serve a certain amount of time for their own health and well-being? Um, I wouldn't put a limit on how long one can serve, but I would say that, again, creative thoughts around whether that's sabbaticals or whether that's options for, you know, time away after certain times, just to allow that time, again, to, to sit at the mountain, to rest, reflect and, and recharge, because... You know, you don't only have to look at the headlines to see that burnout is happening, not just in education, you know, I think in, in many kind of roles in life. But, you know, the increasing complexity of schools, the fact that we're not just educating young people, we are accounting for mental health, there's greater safeguarding expectations. And again, only rightly so, but the resource that goes into a school is not matching what the expectations are on leaders. And again, one person at the top of that mountain, you know, needs to have broad shoulders to handle that. And, you know, the more that's piled on, the less people will be in that situation. Yeah, yeah, I, I do agree. Yeah. And I, I think that's a very interesting, you know, to, to have more than one head. I'm not really sure how that would work, but it's, it's certainly an interesting uh, concept that bears some thought. Yeah. And then I suppose on the other side of, you know, you're talking about the breadth and, and of the role of, of the job, you know, um, but quite often, it, you know, there's a very reductionist 
attitude to um, education nowadays and whether that's exam results coming down to a percentage, whether that's an inspection that really comes down to one word or, you know, whether it's kind of media reflecting how schools are going, you know, and I think that's very kind of stressful as well. There's very little empathic understanding of what oh, I think- goes on in a school, even though, you know, all those journalists and inspectors and people went to schools, you would hope. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think it is right that people in positions like ours, there is a level of accountability so that we are, you know, acting in the most responsible manner, but at the same time, just the sheer weight of accountability that's changed over the last two decades, is it proportionate? Does it reflect actually the realities of what one can do in the positions and, and meaningfully change? And again, that's that's an interesting balance for isn't it? So there are very few head teachers who are not going to be qualified to do the role or who are not going to go in there with the right intentions. And is our system set up to weed those those few out? Will that not be at the expense of those who are, uh, you know, trying their best in difficult situations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah, and 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 then there's also the whole side that I suppose we haven't really well we've indirectly maybe touched on, but um, it's that whole side of um, yeah, you did. You kind of mentioned it there, the contribution to the community. Because I think that's often underestimated, you know, just what schools do in terms of um, producing uh, young men and young women who can go out into the community. I know, look, parents are the primary carers and so on, but teachers' contribution to that is is enormous and very often unrecognised. And I think, you know, if you look at some of the old kind of adverts they had in England to encourage people into teaching, you know, you always remember, you know, a great teacher and, you know, people who go into teaching want to shape young people to be the best they can. And, you know, do we understand that enough? Do we look at it? Do we look at it enough in terms of how we are proactive of bringing that in rather than just expecting it from schools? And again, those are interesting for me. So when it works well as local authorities where the work they do with schools or with the local councils is hand in glove and works perfectly, there are some times when actually schools are just expected to pick up the slack of services that are being cut elsewhere. And again, that's that's almost an expectation rather than collaboration. And I think that's a shame. Very true. Very true, and such a shame is right, yeah. So, Paul, we're almost at the end of the programme, and one of the questions I always ask people is, if you had a magic wand, but you could only cast one spell, what change would you make to education that would significantly improve the lot of teachers? I would probably remove GCSEs and I would allow for more of a um, more of a program that allowed students breadth of understanding, allowed teachers to shape a curriculum that fits with you know local needs, community needs, expertise of teachers, and then allow for a better lead into the specialisation of of sixth form study. Because I think at the moment. GCSEs as a roadblock and it's an accountability measure that people aim themselves at that doesn't serve teachers or students in, in the best possible way. Too much is pointed at it for the wrong reason and I think we could be better at empowering students and also serving teachers and inspiring teachers again you know, by, by removing that. Wow, how interesting. Gosh, and that's, uh, that's very interesting. It's actually taking me back 38 years because what you've just described there is not so, so different um, from the education system here in Northern Ireland that I first went into all that time ago. Um, we had a lot of autonomy over kind of creating our own uh, curriculum. Um, gosh, that's very interesting. Yeah. We look at, you know, Callahan's 1976 Ruskin speech, you know, the intention was there. It was well-meaning. And then just it's it's one of those moments of what could have been because, again, I can understand why. It's frustrating why. But, you know, the moment was lost. And, you know, 
you know, here we are. And and for better and worse, you know, there's there's great things we do in schools, but I think sometimes we are hamstrung by well-meaning intent from, from Whitehall that actually doesn't serve the, the students we all want to do so well by. Yeah. Well, on that note, Paul, we're going to have to leave it tonight. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You've given us a lot of advice and I'm sure people listening uh, live and to the podcast will have their pens out and they'll be taking notes about how they can manage themselves in their new leadership positions. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Take care. Take care. Bye now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.